Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for listening to Toronto Today. We've got our Thursday show heading into a long weekend. Appreciate you being here. Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star will join us. We'll have Chatterbox with Sabrina Nanji and Alan Carter. Uh, and Bill Browder on the show. Uh, fantastic interview with him with his new book about Russia, Vladimir Putin, and what needs to be done by the free world, in essence, all of us together, to stop Russia. Uh, and Allison uh, Krug on the show as well, an epidemiologist that I like a lot, really brings it uh, straight up the middle, and we'll have a conversation with her. It's all coming up on Toronto Today. Let me give you uh, my thoughts on last night. Um, so news comes in, um, and uh, I, I don't take issue with the word plateau, but uh, the headline in the Toronto Star, new COVID-19 cases in Ontario have likely plateaued around 100,000 a day. Well, the last two days they've gone down, so you know, they're going down right now. That's go. That's a downward cycle among estimated cases. Here's the fun part. You know from last week's shows that um, I don't think there's 120,000 new infections a day in Ontario. Let me lay some of this math out here for you. And yes, um, we'll talk about it a good chunk in the morning. Yes, my friend Bruce Arthur will join me at uh, 820 and we'll try and figure it out. I want to talk as well in this segment about last year at this time. And just to let you know what a better place we're in compared to last year, I'm going to play you some of this audio from Doug Ford and Sylvia Jones, the solicitor general. And you'll think it's, you'll think it's right out of George Orwell's 1984. And it was a year ago this weekend. So I'm going to get to that, but I need some, I just need to make sure I'm not crazy here. And I said to a few people last night, I mean, really smart epidemiologists. I want them to get out and go on the record with this. But there was another collective eye roll. I'm telling you that that's my um, anecdotal experience talking to other infectious disease specialists as an epidemiologist about this. uh, We can tell how many cases there are based on wastewater readings. You can tell trends. You can tell if it's going up. You can tell if we're in trouble. You can tell if you um, back pre-vaccination, whether you were going to have to do some dodging here, whether you were going to have to. And we can debate restrictions um, and what what's valid and what's not. But you could tell which way the direction was going. OK, you go to a beach, right? You know, when the water's coming in and when the water's going out, you see more sand. Those are like those are observable things with your eyes. Wastewater is really helpful for that. Really helpful for that. You absolutely follow the poop, do what you need to do. But let me get this straight. Let me get it straight. Um, In the last 10 days, let's say we got, well, let's say we got 120,000 cases a day that was put out there. And then all of a sudden people ran with it as gospel. Okay. At the church of Peter Uni, you go to the church of Peter Uni, you make a contribution, you sit in the pew and he tells you what's happening. Okay. And listen, he's been very good. Sometimes he's been very right. Okay, he was upset, by the way, quite upset and almost resigned from the science table last year at this time because of the outdoor restrictions that uh, that the provincial government decided to lay out. Okay, we're going to talk about that this morning. Believe me, we are. It's my last chance this week to talk about it. But let's say we've got one. Let's say 10 days of one hundred twenty thousand cases. Now, remember, a, a ton of a ton of Ontario residents if we just stick to the province got Omicron. From late November all through December through most of January, it flattened us like it was everywhere. And I know you think BA2 is probably more everywhere than Omicron. That's probably fair anecdotally, which um, is really strange because Omicron had all these restrictions. Stay at home, no school for a couple of weeks. 
don't go here, don't go there. It's not safe to do this. It's not safe to do that. I went out and had a drink with a friend of mine, um, but I didn't go too many places. There weren't too many places to go. We'd shut down arenas again. We shut down um, Raptors and, and Leafs games. We did all that stuff. Didn't stop it. Didn't stop it one bit. I had a cloth mask on my face, Greg. I wore it to the grocery. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. And there's, I can't tell you how many people are telling me I have Omicron or sorry, I have, I have uh, COVID right now. It's in my house and I was the only one that got infected or two of us out of five got infected. You live with someone. You live with someone in an airborne. I need you to know this for a sec. You live with someone in an, with an airborne virus and not everybody gets infected, but you will get it in a 30 second exchange from somebody at the grocery store because you just feel more comfortable blaming a stranger for how you got it. Now, if you went to a Raptors game, that that maybe so. Maybe you did with 20,000 people there. But the common everyday exchanges, a school classroom with 19 kids, the vast majority of whom are not susceptible to this at all. The vast majority, I said, not everybody. You're going to get it. You'll test positive for it potentially, but you're not going to be sick from it. The vast majority. Okay, that's the data. You can feel how you feel. I'm giving you data. And if you don't give me data back, I, I'm so I, we got to go data over feelings after 26 months. We got to go evidence over feelings after 26 months. Here's um, but here's Peter Uni explaining the concept of what he was looking at. Cause, cause I, I said it, I was like, I'm not buying it. And a couple guests, Isaac Bogart said, I don't think you can do that. Stefan Burrell said, I don't think you can do that. Kelly Cutrera had him on on Friday and fair game. She um, she played, I think, Stefan Burrell's clip. And this is how he responded. My colleagues from uh, from Ottawa started to validate it and compared our curves that we had regionally with the hospital counts, you know, the hospital occupancy, and again, found a really high correlation. So what we're actually seeing works out and it all just fits fits in. But of course, we didn't have time to go out with that. And now we have this second wave and we challenged and I just needed to go out and say, look, this corresponds to approximately this number. Okay. Okay. There's a million people in Ottawa, a million their hospitalizations for COVID yesterday, these are the freshest numbers you can get, fell from 20 to 16. 16 people in a city of a million people have had to go to hospital. Would any of them have been there anyway? Well, we're correlating at about you know eight to nine of those 16 would have been there anyway. That's what hospitals are saying. They're determining that. One patient's in intensive care. One one in a million. Have you ever been told you're one in a million? Well, that's that uh, that man or woman, and we hope they they recover. They're in intensive care with, but they're the only one. They look around. Am I the only one? Yeah, you are. You are the only one. I hope you get back. So let me again understand this. Like I'm three years old. In the last ten days, 1.2 million Ontario residents were new cases of COVID. 1.2 million. That's right. Okay, ten times 120,000. We agree that's the math. Of those 1.2 million. But 550 of them went to hospital, 22 of them to the ICU. Those are the numbers. We've had 550 new hospitalizations. So a new COVID case, I want you to know how dangerous this virus is, how dangerous this particular variant is, because this is not original COVID and it's not Alpha and it's not Delta. This is how dangerous this virus is of 1.2 million people that have got infected per the Ontario science table. That's what they say. They say that. You got a one in 2,200 chance of being hospitalized. Going to ICU, there's 22 extra cases. We're up 22 cases, okay, in the plus minus uh, scenario. 
you've got a one in 55,000 chance of going to intensive care where people sometimes go. It's sad. People get sick. It's really unfortunate. And this time of year, hospitals do peak out. Stefan Burrell said this on last week's show about just the fact that you can't buy into these numbers. And even if we were going to do that, we'd have to build a model, like a mathematical model, where we try to, you know, assess the, you know, how representative those samples are of the province and then try to extrapolate to other places. But we're not doing any of that. Like those are interesting mathematical calculations that we've worked on for other things like HIV and STI prevalence, for example, in the province where we don't test everybody. But none of that's happening. This is just like somebody's like taking a number and applying it. And I, I think, you know, there's very few people that would run with the number that he provided other than himself. It makes Ontario unique. No other province has done it. No state's done it. No Western democracy has done it. It's all rather remarkable at the end of the day. I want to remind you, if you got thoughts on that, I want to hold it here for a sec. 289-975-1640 via text. 289-975-1640. Last year at this time, it was a Friday. Easter was the weekend before we did this, and we closed everything down. I want to remind you of how that felt and how that sounded and talk about that a little bit with you as the morning continues. Friday afternoon, an announcement came and Doug Ford said, we are closing playgrounds. Here's how that sounded. Effective immediately. We're extending the emergency declaration and prolonging the stay at home order province wide for an additional two weeks. Outdoor gatherings will now be strictly limited to members of your own household only. We'll be closing all non-essential construction. We're restricting all outdoor recreational amenities, such as golf courses, basketball courts, soccer fields, and playgrounds. It's unbelievable. Like, it's unbelievable we did that. And let me, the, some of the numbers were really dire. We were all wondering what needed to be done. We went, we, we went too half-restricted in some ways. There's some things we never should have touched, never should have touched, and should have made sure it was safe. This is the Solicitor General, Sylvia Jones. I'm going to ask you, does this sound like, and she's talking about the ability, granting the ability of the police to stop you and ask where you're going. And she's talking about the propensity for neighbors to call on their neighbors, their friends, their colleagues, friends of their children. And she wanted you to make phone calls to the police about who's gathering and who isn't, whether it was in backyards, whether in houses, whether it was not. Does this sound like democracy? Does this sound like humanity? This was a year ago with the current government that we have. Here's how Sylvia Jones put it. In terms of people calling um, to snitch, to inform. I'm never going to encourage people to inundate the bylaw enforcement or police departments with calls. But if it means saving lives, then I think we have to think about what your social responsibilities are as an individual to make sure that you don't empower other people and invite a whole bunch of individuals to your home. Jesus H. Murphy. That was a year ago at this time. We live in Ontario. I know it's not land of the free, home of the brave, but kind of close sometimes. We've we felt that way at least before 2020. What's your reaction when you hear those clips about where we were a year ago? We're in a much better place. Schools are open. We're able to do more. But we a lot we like we didn't go out into the streets and say this isn't right. 
isolating old people, telling kids their little disease vector. We didn't do any of that. We took a lot of this. Should we have? Uh, Allison Krug is an epidemiologist uh, based in South Carolina, and we've talked before about uh, boosters, and we've talked about the vaccines, and I've always enjoyed our conversation. I think she gives us a really fresh perspective, and she joins us right now. We um, we were talking about mandates. We've talked about mandates here, and obviously a lot of people um, back and forth on masks, and you try and see both sides of it. Where are people in in your part of the world with mandates? Right. I really think that it, we should stop battling over which is better, natural immunity versus vaccine immunity. Um, it's it's really like a corner battle in hockey, you know, like we're yeah. just waiting for that puck to get free and we can move on with the game because it's really not which is better. It's like together. They're they're really pretty great. And you're so right, Greg. Kids do get sick. I mean, that's a natural part of developing a very robust immune system for later in life. By the time they're you know, around a year old through around 12 is a really good time for them to be building natural immunity to all of these things. And better to do that young when the risks are very low than as they age into more risk as they get older. Some of the most sick I've been, um, it is my recollection, is being in university. I had I had mono before I started my first year, flat on my back for two and a half weeks. I remember being sick for a week and a half. And here's why. You're living on your own. You're not taking safeguards you're probably eating terribly you're out at night you're at bars you're at concerts you're in sweaty crowded classrooms like i can keep going like you just do <laughs> you do not and boys really you know but you know how boys boys are messy uh, my, my boys have good immunity greg i think yeah yeah so i i remember probably five years if you said to me when have you like just felt like you couldn't move and you were like praying for it all to end the most it's probably between age 19 and 24 i've lived a almost a quarter century since then. And I haven't been as sick as I was in those periods of time. Truly. Right. No, I, I mean, I got mono too. And I had, I was just telling my boys, I had to like trudge downhill to the university hospital in the <laughs> snow with my mono. And you know what, Greg, I didn't, I didn't even have, you know, it's the kissing illness. I didn't kiss anybody. I, it's not the kiss. I know. I listen, I, I can clarify. It's not, I don't care what they said on happy days. It's not the kissing. Right. I, I didn't have any like illustrious story to tell the it's, ER staff. They're like, no. what were you doing? And, and you're tired. Like I remember oh, sleeping terrible. 17, 18, 19 hours in 24 hour periods yeah. for about four or five straight days. Yep. No, no doubt I about couldn't, it. Even, couldn't even shower. It was it was the most horrific I've ever felt. Tonsil. And so like, <laughs> so yeah, people people get sick. But but, you know, the what you bring up is that it's just a natural part of life. And there are people we really need to take very good care of. And I really want to shift the conversation from freaking out, everyone freaking out universally at the same level, everyone like level 10 or 11 freak out. And we really need to conserve our energy and resources to protecting those who really need us. We really need to to put more energy into being smart about protecting the people at high risk and allowing the other kids to live their lives and stop living in fear. Because I'll tell you what, the the inability for them to speak up about their rights and to um, be living in perpetual fear of uh, you know, an airborne virus is probably locking them into a state of, of like indecision. Like some might want to rebel and resist, but they can't. And the others don't want to like disappoint and their stigma. And so there's locked into this paralysis of indecision about, you know, can we move forward or not? And my own son told me that's situational depression. That's not long-term yeah. depression. That's not a depression you can't climb out of, but it's a depression that we've imposed on them 
because we're not thinking clearly about risk and we're not letting them make choices themselves. And I think, yeah, no, people, you and I, I think it's two pronged. We're looking out for our parents who I think, you know, they've lived seven, eight decades. Now, I would say now that we know what we know and now that we have the knowledge we have and the treatment we have and the processes we have for that. I'm not, uh, you know, we locked everybody down in Ontario again in, in January. And I'm I'm just I think about, you know, kids that are five and six and seven. Uh, and I think about people that are way, way older than me who need gyms to stay open and who need to socialize and who who just the isolation will crush them once again for a sixth, seventh time. And um, and I'll do whatever it takes and you'll probably do whatever it takes. But I'm, I'm looking at the people 30 years older than me and the people 30 years younger than me. And that's why it's worth getting in a brawl or two and and being honestly adamant about where we're going in the long term here, because we're just spinning our tail in a lot of fronts with mandates. No, it's true. And I feel like, uh, you know, people our age maybe are have the luxury of being able to speak up and especially freelancers myself have the great luxury and, and privilege of being able to speak up at very low risk. I know there's many, many other people who feel similarly but for whatever reason, they have to adopt an alias on Twitter and they don't, can't speak freely. <laughs> and, <laughs> right, that covers it. You checked all the boxes. A lot of numbers at the end of their name. Also, it's very strange. How do you get the seven numbers? It never occurred to me to do that. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, you know, there are certain you know perils to speaking freely, but, you mm-hmm. know, I, I, it's just unfortunate that things have become so polarized. And um, if you're smart and you have risks, then yes, you should get vaccinated before you run into Omicron for sure, 100%. But, you know, little kids are really the lowest risk. And even some of the graphs that have been floating around out there about children are somewhat misleading, showing high risk from age one and lower. It's really six months and younger, primarily. So I think the whole situation with the masks for the toddlers in New York City is either buying into the fear or they're worn out and can't resist. So I feel for for people that public health has not been very clear about where the true risks are. And now we've made people fearful of everything and not understanding their own bodies. Allison Krug's our guest epidemiologist on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Last couple of things for you. Who who do you look at and say, uh, is there an age threshold you look at and, and you say um, a fourth shot is uh, is a good conversation? Do you look at an, an age threshold and say, it shouldn't even be considered right now. Again, it's only 50 plus and 18 plus for immunocompromised people. We're getting other options, obviously, like Paxlovid. The one conversation I'll tell you I had with my parents was I'd say I'd really I've talked to a couple of doctors who are hopeful about an, an Omicron centric vaccine. But mm-hmm. I said, I, you know, like they're they're they'll be five months out from their third shot pretty soon. And so we're talking about mid-May for that six month when they'd be eligible. But I, I said, I, you know, I know that the current vaccines are protecting from severity right now. They're not doing a great job preventing infection and spread. Not one bit, to be perfectly honest. And uh, right. I go, I, I've, tr- you know, it's amazing. You got to try and tell p- people in their mid 70s, um, you can stay home all you want. You, you might end up getting this or you'll drive yourself crazy trying to avoid it. It'll be one of those two things. Yeah, I try to game systems, I think, you know, in my thinking, I like to be really efficient about how I work. And so if I were to answer your question that way, and I think about, you know, my my parents who are older, and I, I have conversations with them about this, I think what I would do is try to sense when a wave is on its way over here, a new variant on its way. So we saw BA2 was on its way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can look at wastewater um, samples if we want to be really savvy, or we can just listen to the news. And if it's in the UK, then it'll be here a month later, maybe. Um, and I would think about if I were, you know, 80 or older. My dad is 85. Um, I was talking to him just before I talked to you. Mm-hmm. I would think about 
the possibility of getting a, a booster. I don't think that for someone who's 60 years of age and older, that the harms are going to outweigh the benefits really at all. I mean, it's going to boost antibodies and their reactogenicity is lower because they're older. Their immune system is less reactive. So we know that that correlates with the age. The things I worry about is the reactogenicity for the younger people, the harms outweighing the benefits. But for me, you know, over age 60, that calculation is really different. And if it allows an older person to live life and get together with family and ride out waves of new variants with a little more confidence, I don't have any problem with that, honestly. And, and it's so, like, I'm, I'm glad you compartmentalize that because so much of the struggle for me has been, and I, you know, I, I think the business I'm in, um, sometimes we, we ask too broad a question. So somebody will ask a public health figure, hey, is it safe to get together for Easter? Well, for who? I mean, for 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 an 85 year old um, that's uh, that's that's struggling that just had a recent surgery for a couple of college kids that haven't seen each other in in right. eight months, 100%. like yeah. huge difference. And we've done too much of this one size fits all oh, guidance. Stay home. Go out. Do this. Mask <laughs> up. Don't wear mat. Like like we, we've done way, way too much of it. And, yeah. um, at, you know, I even saw Dr. Fauci say it on the weekend. And I'm like, well, if he's saying it and he's out on restrictions and he's saying this is not going away. We're all here with this and we're going to have to manage our own individual risk. And, and there's still are so many ways you can support each other without mandates, without circuit breakers and without panic, to be honest. Right. hundred percent. I mean, he's finally saying, yeah, it's around and, and we all get the, you know, the privilege of, you know, managing our own risks. So, okay. That means to me, you know, what I just heard before we went on air mm -hmm. is um, in a correctional facility, the, I don't think that the inmates were required to be vaccinated. So it was like 42% had two doses and 46% had one dose. And here we're mandating university students to be vaccinated. So I'm like, if there is ever a high risk environment with people who have health conditions and you know exposures to different things that would perhaps compromise their immune systems or just make their health a little bit more challenged. I would think that would be in a correctional system where you're also in very close environs. And there's a pharmacist who is a little loud in Ontario, and she is adamant that all kids 12 and over need to be need to have have three shots. And I'm thinking people are walking in there and they're just getting blindsided because they're like, well, she's a pharmacist. She knows. Conversely, you've probably got, you know, it's probably I always feel like it's more of a guy thing. You've got guys that think Aaron Rodgers isn't getting vaccinated. Kyrie. Are you in the shape Kyrie Irving's in? Are you a 30 year old man? <laughs> right. Are you, can you play 42 minutes in the NBA tomorrow night at point guard in the playoff? Can you do, okay, then you, sh you might not, you might not be able to have the natural protection Kyrie Irving or Aaron Rodgers has. But again, you know, I die. Same thing with masks, right? We've equ we equated masks. Some people did with the vaccine. And then we heard from family members going, boy, it's a shame what happened, but um, they, you know, she got told she had a really great mask and didn't think she needed the vaccine madness. Right. It's so true. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to be a little nuanced in our thinking, right? I mean, the athletes are, are definitely in good shape and probably in a different situation than us. And we don't know what their history of COVID is. They've been tested a ton. Yeah. So presumably they know if they've had it or not, but yeah, this binary thinking really needs to stop because it's far more complex than that. And the other thing that I think is so ridiculous is assuming that people can't process nuance. They really can. We have really terribly misjudged what, you know, normal people can understand. I mean, it's it's quite disheartening. And I think we alienate them from, you know, medical advice in general if we don't dignify them with the, you know, the opportunity to engage in conversation versus just 
telling them what we think they should. Thank you so much for the time. And thanks for uh, the straight. I love our straight conversations. And I think it helps our listeners a lot. I always hear from them and they always appreciate you making time. Good. I'm glad. So, so nice of you, Craig. It's good to see you. Stuff's heavy, man. It is. Um, I'm going to talk to uh, Bill Browder in just a second. I want to hear. I want you to hear this from John Spencer. Um, we had him on. He's in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He was an Iraq War veteran, and he's got a new book out about. Um, and and he, uh, what we wanted to get him on originally for was talking about war in urban areas and how you're kind of if you're the invader, you're at a big disadvantage. And we saw that early in the Ukraine war. But I want to play this clip from it's macro as opposed to micro. And I do think we played it on the show about 10, 11 days ago. It all it all fogs up sometimes. I think that we did. But I want you to hear this now, because this was after the weekend, two weekends ago, when we saw all the footage in Bu- in Buka and we saw you know, people with their hands tied behind their back and and murdered in the street. And we heard, started hearing these awful, horrific stories about Russian soldiers, dead Russian soldiers being found with condoms. Well, what do you think they have condoms for? It's horrifying. This was John Spencer talking about America, and I guess that would involve most of the Western world, needing to maybe, maybe go in with boots on the ground and be more, be more involved. Here's what he said. I know what this means. I know what I'm saying. I served for 25 years. I serve to protect the innocent. We are the leaders of the free world. So yes, and my wife still serves. I don't speak for her, but I'm ready to commit at this moment, unlike I was before this day, to put people in direct contact with Russia, to stop Russia. Call it peacekeeping, call it what you will. We have to do more than provide weapons. And by we, I mean the United States. Yes, we're gonna do it as a coalition with lots of other people, but we are the example So put boots on the ground, send weapons directly at Russia. This is a massacre. This is a special kind of evil. It's a special kind of evil. We've had these waves of emotion for it. And and I worry we've settled in the last 10, 11 days. And then you start to accept what a reality is. We've done that with COVID. We've done that with many things. Our next guest uh, is a best-selling author and just brilliant to talk to about Russia. And I'm so glad he's making the time for our show once again here in Toronto. The new book is called Freezing Order, A True Story of Money Laundering, Murder, and Surviving Vladimir Putin's Wrath. And it ain't fiction. He did all that. Uh, It's out on hardcover right now. You can find it on Amazon or Indigo, wherever you get your books. He is Bill Browder. Bill, thanks for coming back on in Toronto. We really appreciate it. Good to be here. When you hear that John Spencer uh, clip, John's been John's been very good on this stuff. And again, there's somebody that isn't an academic and he isn't saying things from afar and he isn't a, a talk radio yob like me. He knows what he's talking about when it comes to warfare and what's necessary. When you hear that quote, do you think there is a growing or or um, or, or prominent appetite that we will have to do this eventually to to stare down Vladimir Putin and call his bluff? Well, um, you know, th- that that's the whole thing. If we keep on announcing we, that we're not going to go in there, we're not going to go in there, we're not going to go in there, he's going to keep on murdering, raping, destroying, you know, ruining lives as he's doing. And, and you know, th- there's a lot of different ways you can define going in there. Um, you know, f- f- it, th- what the Ukrainians are asking for, they're saying, look, we've got our soldiers, we're defending our country, just give us some air cover, mm-hmm. no-fly zone. We could do that. We could do that. We could set up a no-fly zone. Um, and in warn the Russians that if you want to send any aircraft to bomb Ukrainians, we're going to shoot you down. And they might then send in some aircraft to bomb uh, civilians, and then we shoot them down. And then Russia has to make a choice. So they want to go to war 
with the whole world when they can't even beat the Ukrainians. And I don't think that Putin will do that. I think that at the end of the day, he's, you know, he, he's, a, he's a practical man. And what he needs to see is strength, raw strength. And that's, that's got to be, our, that's going to be, it's not got to be, it's going to be our position sooner or later. I like your point there. If you drive, if you drive past the same police officer, let's say the same state trooper, the same Ontario cop on the highway every day, same spot. And you're speeding like you're speeding like you deserve a ticket speeding, not 10 miles or kilometers over the limit. And he doesn't stop you ever. You'll keep doing it. You will keep doing it until there's a, until there's a disincentive. And, and, and that's all that Vladimir Putin understands. All he understands is strength. He doesn't, and he, he takes advantage of weakness. I mean, the, the only difference between your analogy um, <laughs> is, is that um, the person driving down the road is killing people on the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's the thing, is, is that Vladimir Putin only understands strength. And, and he's a bully, he's a mafia boss, and, if, and, if you can, and he's also a weak bully and mafia boss. You know, we're sitting here with a full house. He's got a pair of twos, but he's bluffing and we're folding. It's ridiculous. I think uh, I, I think so much of uh, obviously, you know, uh, COVID and policy. There's a lot of world leaders on, in, in, you know, on tenuous ground in their own domestic scenarios with popularity. Boris Johnson is one. But I thought that was a good moment for <laughs> Boris Johnson to walk with Vladimir Zelensky down a Kiev, a Kiev street. Joe Biden coming out and saying this is genocide. He is a war criminal. I like that. I, I, I know that, you know, what, what the polls may say even about him. Is this anything? Does this mobilize any sort of appetite for the world getting stronger and more forceful for ending this and 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 ending basically, um, the, you know, the Vladimir Putin reign here? Well, the the the, the answer is it's going to happen. I mean, how many more of these atrocities can we all watch on our televisions and then uh, agree that our leaders just sit back with their sitting on their hands? I just don't think that that's. I don't think we have the capability to do that for that much longer. And, and the way that we get rid of Vladimir Putin is by showing him to be a loser. So the Russian people will support him to do all sorts of terrible atrocities. The one thing they won't support him to do is to be a, a loser, to be weak and to be a loser. And that's what we have to show him to be. <clears throat> Bill Browder is our guest. The book is Freezing Order, A True Story of Money Laundering, Murder, and Surviving Vladimir Putin's Wrath. Um, when I ask about the switch of uh, of of this general that got brought in, I mean, everybody started talking, but everybody heard about it. They called him the butcher based on what he had done, obviously, in, in prior engagements, Syria specifically. Is that more an indication that Putin is well aware, well aware that things aren't going well and that and that Russia is losing this war? Or is this simply an escalation of a war? He's being told by some of his generals that you're doing fine. I and mean, people seem afraid to tell him the truth. Yeah, but he's not like some kind of like granny sitting in, you know, sitting in the corner. I mean, he can watch CNN like everybody else can, like all the other people. He can see the, what's really happening just based on our news. I mean, he knows exactly what's going on. He's extremely frustrated. He keeps on switching out generals and arresting uh, secret policemen. He's, they arrested 150 secret policemen, you know, um, uh, switching out generals. Eight generals were killed by the, by, by the Ukrainians. Um, hopefully this guy will be as well. I mean, if he's a butcher, he should be, he should be uh, located and shot, just like the rest of them. Um, uh, it's, um, you know, Vladimir Putin is on very, very thin ground right now. He, he doesn't have the the capability to really do this war. And, um, and, you know, and the thing about it is that he's, he's, tr he's tried to project the strength to all of us in the world. And he, all he's shown us is incompetence and corruption and weakness. 
um, in the way that he's gone about Ukraine. And so we should, mm -hmm. if anything, be more emboldened to stand up to him. I definitely want to talk about the book a little bit. One more big picture issue. I saw an analyst say this the other day that in a way, a lot of what's gone badly here has been a lack of preparation only in that Ukraine really didn't think really didn't think Russia would invade. Russia didn't think Ukraine would fight. So then there's a little bit of a franticness to it, almost like a hockey fight where it's it's a lot more chaotic than, you know, we're going to have a boxing match. I'm going to train for it. You're going to train for it. We're going to get in the ring. Ukraine didn't expect such an offensive and Russia didn't think Russia may have thought, will, will this be like the Taliban? Will Ukrainians say we're, we give up? We're not we're not standing. You know, we know we can't win. We're not standing up. And they got exactly the opposite. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the only thing I would disagree with your characterization is that you, th this war has actually been going on for eight years. We call it, you know, we say it started on the February 24th, but Russia had mm -hmm. invaded Ukraine back in, in 2014. And so the Ukrainians <clears throat> weren't ill-prepared. I mean, yes, you're right that they, they didn't think, I, I don't think a lot of people thought that Putin would actually go through with this. I mean, it's just so outrageous. But, but the Ukrainians have been fighting since 2014 and quietly building up their capability. And and the one thing that 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 no matter how much you know training or lack of training, they're defending their homeland. You know they're defending their children, their their freedom. That's a compelling, compelling uh, cause. And mm -hmm. you know even the most cynical Ukrainian, as anyone who knows uh, who knows anybody who's been killed, is just going to do everything possible to fight off these murderous people. Knowing what you knew going in with all your years of experience with Vladimir Putin and, and living in Moscow and, and with um, with the death of your lawyer, would you have predicted a world response almost on a cultural level sport? When we talk about I mean, you and I talked, I think, in, in October, or November. So that's way before February and, and this conflict. Um, but when when Roman Abramovich has to give up Chelsea, when he's on the run, when all these oligarchs are out there, when when we're putting major heat on Germany to start stop using Russian oil and maybe it will happen eventually. Did you think the world the world would unite? Because we didn't do this about genocide in Rwanda and we didn't do this about the Balkans war. We didn't we didn't react the same way. Um, I, I didn't expect it. And I certainly didn't expect it in relation to Putin and Russia. What I've seen over the last 20 years is a constant um, uh, sort of apologist appeasement type of thing where everybody was just tiptoeing around Putin and just letting him get away with terrible things. I, I mean, look, he invaded Georgia. He took Crimea illegally. He carpet bombed civilians in Syria. He um, hacked the U.S. election. He's, you know, spread poison and uh, ner banned nerve agents along in Salisbury in England. He, he, I mean, it's, I mean, I could literally go on for an hour of all the terrible crimes that he's committed and we've just looked the other way. And so, you know, it's unbelievable that, that we've had a real response. And, and for me, it's surprising. I think for Vladimir Putin, it's surprising. The book is called Freezing Order. You wrote Red Notice. It got a lot of uh, response uh, acclaim. A lot of people have obviously uh, bought it even retrospectively in the last three or four months to get a feel for it. Tell the audience what the timeline is for Freezing Order. Does it sort of have a beginning, a middle and an end chronologically in your writings? <laughs> Yeah, well, so basically, um, so my first book, Red Notice, was all about going to Russia with all sorts of stars in my eyes, hoping to make money in the financial markets, and then having my lawyer um, uh, murdered by a bunch of corrupt officials, and then fighting for justice, and getting a thing called the Magnitsky Act passed, which now exists in Canada and many other countries. Freezing Order picks up where Red Notice leaves off, and one of the things that we did after um, getting the Magnitsky Act passed was saying who got the money the $230 million corruption scheme that, that Sergei Magnitsky uncovered. And 
And for the last 10 years, we've been tracing the money and finding out who got it. And as we were doing so, um, we discovered that it went to all sorts of places in the West to buy all sorts of luxury things, property, mm -hmm. et cetera. And we discovered that Vladimir Putin got some of that money. And moreover, we discovered that the scam that, that Sergei Magnitsky was killed over was one, one of 1,000 scams of similar size. And the amount of money that we could identify being stolen from Russia by Vladimir Putin and his cronies was north of $200 billion. And, um, and that was just what we could identify. And so my estimate is that, that the Vladimir Putin regime, the people around him and he have stolen a trillion dollars um, uh, since Vladimir Putin came to power. And the reason for this war mm -hmm. and the reason for everything that they do is, is just to try to hold on to this money. That they, they, He needs to stay in power to hold on to the money. The war is all about him distracting the people who are ups, uh, justifiably upset that they, that they have no health care and no education because all the money has gone to yachts and villas. And you mentioned in our last visit, a lot of it's stuffed in major cities around the world. And Toronto, Canada is no different. There's a lot of Russian money here in the city of Toronto. No question. You look at some of those high rises in Toronto, they're owned by Russians. Freezing Order is the book, a true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. I always enjoy seeing you on TV. I always enjoy our conversations, Bill. Thanks for bringing this uh, to us today. Thank you. It was great to have you on. Uh, Freezing Order is the book. Uh, check it out on Amazon.ca. Uh, Shiba Siddiqui joins me right now. Look, I didn't see this quote when the show started. Um, but I'm going to try and maybe it's a, it's a, I'm a, a, a extra large cup and a half in of coffee, but I'm not happy with this, uh, this quote. It's from your favorite doctor, correct? No, you know what? I, I'll say this. I, I, Peter Uni doesn't, uh, destroy, uh, other colleagues credibility or talk yes, about them personally true. or suggest that Dr. Kieran Moore be arrested. Um, <laughs> so he's got uh. that. I just, I adamantly disagree with this messaging. He says, and this is about Easter. Now, listen, do we, Sheba, I think we set ourselves up for this by inanely asking questions we were asking in April of 2020. Hey, is it safe to gather for Easter? Well, I'm going to be honest here. Who the hell's gathering? A bunch of 80 year olds, the golden girls, um, a lot. Should you have a long-term care uh, party? Like families, like it's families sixteen candles. Families are gathering. Okay, so maybe somebody who is um, eighty-five, or somebody who's waiting on a surgery of some sort, or somebody who is susceptible, or somebody who is unvaccinated. Maybe they would have a different answer. But this one-size-fits-all healthcare recommendation: go here, go there, lockdown, come out. <laughs> no, no. So here's his. It, uh, I'm reading this from uh, another website. Yes. Looking ahead to the long weekend, Uni urged those celebrating Easter to do it outdoors if the weather permits. This will help tremendously, he said. Go to parks and enjoy an early barbecue, much better than indoors. First of all, this is a guy that doesn't. Um, th this is a guy that doesn't barbecue in parks very much because you need a permit to barbecue in parks on a regular. You can't just roll up with some propane and uh, and start launching flames into the air. Um, but the concept is Easter weekend. Could could the Sheba Siddiqui family get together with the Greg Brady family? I know uh, you know you're just going through Ramadan and uh, or just finishing Ramadan, <laughs> right? Next weekend, this weekend? No, it's two weeks. We're, only, we're, only, we're not even halfway through yet. Okay, so you'd be on my turf with I guess my holiday, even though I'm not uh, practicing anything at this point in time. Oh, but we do Easter. We're doing an Easter egg hunt. We're doing all of okay. that. There's my neighborhood's got huge Easter egg hunts going on in local parks. All the kids are gathering. It's yeah, it's people are celebrating. So and the the idea that ten of us, six of you. Four of me couldn't get yeah. together at my house tomorrow Saturday afternoon at four o'clock.
to watch the Raptors game, have a dinner, hang out, get to know each other is absolutely outrageous after three after 26 months of this to even suggest that that's a safety issue. Then cancel everything else, damn it. Cancel everything. Indoor sports, close schools, close like close it all if if the 10 of us can't get together. What a BS recommendation that is. I think he kind of has to say that, I'll be honest with you. And on and We suddenly, don't have to print it in the paper and we don't have to well, talk about it. Okay, and, but and who's put it listening? in newscast. How many people do you know are staying home this weekend? Because the weather's not permitting. Nobody's meeting in a park. Nobody's going to a barbecue because it's going to be raining all weekend. It's going to be cold. But for my, I mean, I have, you know me, I talk about my kids and I have my five-year-old at home. Today's his birthday and he turns six today. Awesome. He's never had a real birthday party in his life because since he started school, we've been in the pandemic. So he's seen his siblings have birthday parties when he was younger, and he's always wondered when it's his turn. So this year we decided, you know what, it's it's getting better. Things look like they're getting better. Let's have him a real birthday party. So I invited his entire class, the kindergarten class, not including him, that's 28 kids. I'm doing it today, this evening, and I figured, oh, you know what, it's... It's the sixth wave. It's before the long weekend. Let's say eight kids show up. I'll be happy. Take some pictures. Proof that we loved him. He can look back on that. Right? But Proof of love. is It's important. As important as proof of life sometimes in hostage situations. Proof, <laughs> proof of, of love, love is just as important. Yes. That's right. And, you know, with your first kid, you go all out. You're all excited. By the time you get to the fourth, Brady, you don't care. I don't care what the cake is. I don't care. Let's just get it over with. And that's it. We love you. But 25 kids of RSVP'd, which I'm shocked. I'm shocked. So, so people, how, how many how many people are in your house today? Tonight? Oh, no, no. It's not in my house. It's oh, not going to be in my house. No, no, I can't have a 25 Why not? in my house. No, uh, no. Don't destroy the house. No, it's not like an indoor playground kind of thing. You okay, know, one of those, okay. Another, yeah, it's at one of those. So that's why we're doing it. But people are coming. No one's canceled. I'm shocked. I didn't even think we'd get 10 kids. And what annoys me is that there's a surcharge after 15 kids. So we have to pay the surcharge. It sucks. Yeah, you can't charge parents. <laughs> <laughs> so they're all coming and uh, I'll let you know what happens on Monday, right? If if people actually show up because people are they're not paying attention to Dr. Union what he's saying. And and I I would say this, what will be different? Like I'm being absolutely serious and not glib in the least. What will be different about Easter 2023 than Easter 2022? Unless we're still counting waves and we're in the ninth wave. If we, if our like, attitudes. Look how our we were attitudes. last year. Yes. We didn't do anything. We were all still scared last year. We weren't allowed to go to the playground last year. So I think that as time goes on, we're all we're all learning to live with this. I I just you can't uh, again. I don't think I could convince my parents to come and well sleep over or hang out at our house and drive up to Ajax from London and hang out with us for Easter all day. I don't think that I could. But a friend of mine took his 77-year-old dad to the Leafs game with his grandson Saturday night to watch the oh, Leafs and Canadians play. Great. That's, I, I love that. That's but great. this person, to tell people to have Easter outdoors, needs to go and shut every... He needs to be brave, okay? He needs to be brave and say everything indoors needs to close right now. If he's telling 10 of us, 6 of you, 4 of me, and let's have the let's have the Rennies and the Bradleys over also. Let's make it an even 2 dozen people or so. He needs to tell us if that's not safe, then everything else isn't. Otherwise, there's an element of hypocrisy. And that, and, and I'm going to use that. the H word pretty regularly when when <laughs> someone's doing that after 26 months. Shut everything else down, damn it. 
We're not going to hear that. You know, we're not going to hear that until like the very last bit of it comes out of nowhere and then everything's a lockdown, which I don't think we're ever going to have a lockdown again. Fingers crossed. Well, you're breaking um, the hearts of several, uh, you know, several um, <laughs> epidemiologists at, uh, at the Dalai Lana School. But yeah, I, I digress. Here's the cut again. I mean, again, maybe I, you know, you get accused of doom scrolling. I watch these things on the Friday. I actually was working on the Saturday morning after the Friday and you're just, you felt hopeless. Like you, um, and you didn't want to talk to your neighbors because you're worried the solicitor general would call the cops on you. How would she find out? Is she watching? This was the solicitor general, Sylvia Jones, a year ago today. In terms of people calling um, to snitch, to inform. I'm never going to encourage people to inundate the bylaw enforcement or police departments with calls. But if it means saving lives, then I think we have to think about what your social responsibilities are as an individual to make sure that you don't empower other people and invite a whole bunch of individuals to your home. Okay, I mean, that's where we were a year ago. And I told you earlier, um, I read my next guest column then, and I looked at it again yesterday, and I basically agree with every single word. It's a, it's remarkable how we all felt a year ago. I felt a failure as a son calling my dad, and I said, you can't play golf for the next five or six weeks. I'm telling my kids, you can't, you can't go here, you, can't, you won't be playing a soccer game until the middle of July once we get all this organized. But that's where we were. You might call them first world problems, but they're, hey, if you feel them, they're real. Bruce Arthur, columnist from the Toronto Star. Wouldn't we rather preview Sixers, Raptors? Wouldn't you rather go to Philadelphia tomorrow? Why, why are we still here? There are a lot of things I would rather be doing than, A, <laughs> writing about the pandemic, B, living the pandemic, C, watching other people live the pandemic or fail to live the pandemic. There's a lot of things I'd rather be doing, um, but... Sometimes you don't get to choose exactly how the world treats us. You don't. I read some of the numbers, and uh, and these would have been the numbers quoted. And again, I, I, the, the concern was tremendous. I remember these days, and you do too, talking to doctors who were like, we, we, are, we are bringing in nurses from other jurisdictions. We're airlifting patients. You'd remember the case. There was a terrible story of the father who whose wife was in hospital, his daughter started to cough really badly, was sick, and he didn't take her to hospital because he was worried she'd be transferred far away and she passed away. It's terrible. Like we've we've just been at the at the epicenter of human tragedy for what feels like forever. But I remember on this day thinking this is a this is an absolute abject failure by the provincial government. What do we know now? Could we have done anything? I know you and I agree about ridiculous to close golf courses, tennis courts, not let seniors out of their apartments, isolate older people. What else could we have done prior to this that you remember? I mean, if you go back and read every column I wrote about the third wave, basically from, I'm going to say, early March on, it tells you what's going to happen. And I, I'm not tooting my horn here at all. Like, if I've been wrong, I tell you, if you go back and read my columns, I was totally wrong. It, it, this, the third wave was kind of amazing, and it peaked right around now last year. And it was this government, after a second wave, which they hadn't yet cleared the hospitals, they said, we're going to reopen, but don't worry. And the science table and the modeling and the hospitals and everyone said, don't do this. Mm -hmm. This is stupid. And then they did it, and then they let it go, and they let it go, and they let it go. The, the signature of this government, other than general incompetence and a lot of the things they do, is in the pandemic, they push the hospital system about as far as they can before they really panic and do the stuff that then signals to the province that they should probably be more careful. 
Like I had a doctor once tell me that in the, even in the first wave, we were, they were four or five days from a Lombardi in Scarborough. Like that was, that, that was real stuff that happened. And the third wave was the worst. Sylvia Jones, that quote from her actually made me laugh out loud saying, you know, I, I never encourage people to snitch on their neighbors, but right. Sylvia <laughs> Jones is also the only person in this government who told the truth about the third wave. She went on CBC well, and said, we just want to make sure the modeling showed up in the hospitals. And I'm like, thank you very much. They did just that. They did that then. Exactly. Like, I got gotcha. you. And that's the thing. The models were never more clear and never more unambiguous than they were then, because that was almost the least uncertain situation we faced in the whole pandemic because we knew who had been vaccinated and who hadn't been vaccinated and we knew how fast we could vaccinate people and we hadn't done it all yet so did we get something right and and i, I told you this we had a private conversation about peter union i said he was right he was right on the money with the third wave he was right to be mad about outdoor restrictions he's right about all that did we misfire on on omicron like your quote was this is the scariest it's been since the pandemic started I know I was scared, too, and you and I talked about it. It, it kind of went in between your prediction and my prediction for where it went when we'd have our private conversations, but it wasn't the third wave. It didn't flood our hospitals and ICUs like the third wave did, Omicron. Oh, that's actually incorrect, my friend Greg. Go right ahead and tell me why I'm incorrect there. The peak of daily deaths actually went as high as it did during the third wave, and that was with a, an incredibly vaccinated population. It like The peaks of daily deaths went straight up, and peaked up around in the mid, early, low 60s or so. And we jammed more people in the hospital than we ever have. Like the, the hospitalizations for the third wave were phenomenal. Like we went almost double what we did in the third wave. And again, this is with a heavily vaccinated population. And if you remember, when the decisions were made in early to mid-December not to do anything, the best data we had, the stuff that from South Africa that everyone was saying, well, South Africa is fine, showed that Omicron at the time looked like it was 23 to 27 percent less severe than Delta. Had Omicron been only 23 to 27 percent less severe than Delta, we would have gotten smoked. Right. But it was way it, it was closer to 45 or 55, wasn't it? Exactly. And so we got hellaciously lucky based on nothing that we could have actually anticipated. And we still had more people in hospital than we'd ever had. And we had that we hit the peak of daily deaths in the province. And I believe we exceeded. I'd have to go back and check. But like we still had a, a really bad wave, which has damaged the hospitals and damaged the health system and killed a lot of people. Um, and that was with an enormous amount of vaccination and getting lucky on the virus. A lot of that hospital staff shortages as well, but we had isolation periods that were that were obviously mandated in. Look, it, we had to let sick people go home and get better, but you and I, we're surrounded by colleagues just, just that have had COVID in the last few days, and yeah, there'd be there'd be a couple days where they couldn't work, and then they'd be able to go back. We were having some 10-day regulations that strapped hospitals and, and provided a lack of staff for, for weeks on in six seven weeks in fact yeah although for the general population 10 days is a lot more scientifically defensible than the five we're currently working with because people can be infectious for more than five days but yeah like the problem we had with hospitals and is a problem we're still actually having with hospitals like there have been surgeries which have been canceled in this wave because right. staff got sick right and even though like it so the best news we're getting is that it looks like it looks like we may be hitting a peak in wastewater which would be wonderful it would be so great. I would sit outside and do a little dance on my porch. 
Um, and that just means we still have a ton of COVID in the system where we got to like now exit our way out of this and we see how fast it goes if that is indeed what's happening. Bruce Arthur, Toronto Star, I guess. Look, I can't I can't defend the messaging where Dr. Uni says go outside for Easter. The Arthur family should be able to come over to the Brady family's household and and watch the game Saturday and have dinner indoors. I can't I with this one size fits all public health recommendation does not work and people tune it out. Like that you can't tell people that everything is about judging your household's risk. Anthony Fauci says that last week. If Fauci's out, if Tam's out, you can't t- Easter outdoors this year is Easter outdoors forever. I would say this in terms of recommendations from health professionals, how should they recommend? And you and I disagree on this, but I think you should say, look, if you don't want to spread the virus, this is what you should do. Okay. So that's a reasonable recommendation, but in the real world, of course, everyone's going to have their own risk budget. Everyone's going to figure out what they are comfortable risking and what their own situation is. Now, the trick that you get is this is the wave where, people are being told assess your own risk and not being given any tools as to what the actual risk is, right? Like the, basically the province has plugged its, plugged its ears and closed its eyes and said, good luck, everybody. And the good, the lucky thing is that for most people, they will be fine. And most people are acting like that. That's just the way it goes. But it does mean that the virus has spread in a really fast way. And a lot of people have gotten sick and a whole bunch of people have gone to the hospital and died. But the, the best thing about this wave, is that we have enough immunity and vaccination, and vaccination that it hasn't been as bad as it could have been. So public health officials should say exactly what you said. Most of you will be fine. Why not say that? They well, don't. Lot, actually, I think that's actually a lot of the messaging has included that because that's just realism, right? Like that's just with Omicron, more people will be fine than in previous waves who got the virus. But it, the, the problem has always been with Omicron, that it is so infectious that it just goes everywhere and it finds the vulnerable people. And that does mean the unvaccinated. It means people who are older, who are immune, immunocompromised, whatever it is. Um, people, there are people out there who are going to be more vulnerable to the virus. The thing going forward, and I know no one wants to talk about going forward because everyone wants to believe this is over and we could just go back to what, how things were. We are going to face another thing like this in the fall. Absolutely. Immunity wanes on vaccination. I, immunity wanes on, on uh, post-infection antibodies. And we are very, very, very vulnerable if we don't keep attacking this and getting ahead of it. And that, to me, is actually the biggest thing going forward. We need a really robust plan to keep dealing with this. The idea of living with COVID should be actually trying to limit the spread of COVID in ways that are protective to the society. Would you, I, I remember you documenting, you didn't, you weren't sure the Grey Cup should happen in Hamilton. So should we be stopping being the only jurisdiction on the planet to stop these indoor games? Should we stop the Raptors and the Leafs from playing to crowds? I'm asking. I don't think we're going to. Like, but you think we should? Uh, I'm not sure that we should if we are peaking at infection now. Um, but I think that it's not real. I don't know. I have trouble saying that that's a necessity in society. Like if you were, if you were going to pull, I don't think we're going to pull anything back. I think the very minimum is we should put masks back on in indoor spaces, especially indoor spaces where people like immunocompromised and cancer patients and old people go. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. that should be something we should do. 
um, and it should be mandatory, not like, well, good luck, everybody. Um, but I think that's as far as we're going to go. But I think they should probably be masking up with the ACC. I still call it the ACC. It'll always be the it's, ACC. It's always the ACC. I know. I know. But then you can't, you, you sip a beer, you, you eat popcorn. Like it's, it's, it's fake. It's fake like wearing it to a gym or a restaurant or a movie theater, right? It's, it's, not, it's not real masking. It's not. Yeah. It's still closer to real masking than no masking. It's like, you got me there. <laughs> Game, set, match. Uh, we're both tennis fans. Have a great Easter weekend. Thanks for doing this. Brady, always my pleasure, my friend. Bruce Arthur. Yesterday, suspected Brooklyn subway shooter Frank James was taken into police custody. He called himself in. Like, it was not not like Kevin Spacey's character in the movie Seven. Like, he basically said, this is where I'm going to be. You come get me. He's 62 years old. He's the main suspect. Two-minute shooting on a Brooklyn subway. Here's the other factor, though, um, that I think people look at. He'd been arrested previously nine times in New York, three times in New Jersey, 12 arrests prior to the shooting. And it's got a lot of people wondering. Uh, when we ask questions about about how to how to do things better, but should that happen? Should somebody arrested 12 times be out there? There were a lot of disturbing social media posts as well. And the mayor of that city, a former cop, Eric Adams, under a lot of fire for other reasons, did make the point that, you know, what can we do about social media? It's all very complex. Uh, I want to bring on um, uh, an expert in law enforcement, 27 years uh, as a, a police detective with the Toronto Police Services and now private investigator Dave Perry. Dave, it's great to have you on Toronto today. Thank you for making the time. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm definitely going to dig into the Toronto stuff. I think it's a great triumph of police work, how, what happened in the last week, it, 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 you know, with with uh, with that arrest. But this Brooklyn subway shooter, I lay that out and I, I'm seeing a lot of video in the last couple of days of violent crimes on the subway and uh, how they need to enforce the subway more. Um, it is uh, it, it, people are just you'd think nothing shocks New Yorkers, but this one seems to have resonated quite obviously. Yeah, I think it really even shook up New Yorkers who are used to a higher level of violence than even we are here in Toronto. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just such a random attack and, and such a vulnerable place for it to happen and so many injuries and so many so many people harmed. It's it's an incredible story. Yeah, when, when that happens, when uh, I th I'm sure they'll look back and I document nine arrests in New York, three in New Jersey. I mean, we'd all look and say, Okay, you know, there's there's sensing issues and it's a struggle, right? And it's a delicate balance. It's a delicate balance of of what were the crimes about? What what were the things we we you know, and there's not much cops can do when they get in front of a judge and the judge gives them a light sentence or says, "Ah, don't worry about it. Go go out and, you know, wasn't that serious." There's there's only so much you can do as a law enforcement officer. For sure, and it's interesting south of the border, they've always been harder on crime than we typically are here in Canada. But uh, over the years, we've seen a lot of reform in terms of sentencing and, and uh, the reluctance to put people in, in jail for long periods of time. So mm -hmm. they're starting to experience some of the things that we've seen up here in Canada where, you know, for example, our gang members, they get involved in a shooting on a Friday night and they're out on Monday morning on bail and they're right back to their gang and they're armed again and, and uh, nothing changed except they had a, a two-night stay in jail over the weekend. Dave Perry is our guest, uh, law enforcement experts. What were the things that jumped out at you about with uh, this arrest? They uh, Toronto police arrested 39-year-old Richard Jonathan Edwin uh, Sunday night. So we learned about it Monday. But there was a Saturday murder and a Thursday murder. Um, and uh, and Toronto police got their guy, allegedly, uh, very quickly afterwards. Yeah, well, random crimes like these, if, you know, perhaps a spree, certainly not a serial murderer, Cases like this, you know, quite often have at least 
some element of mental illness. So who knows what that's going to what that's going to show us in the future. But obviously he's going to be assessed and they're going to figure all of that out. But, uh, you know, as far as mental illness, I just want to make it clear. I don't mean that he's criminally non-responsible, but yeah. he's, uh, he's, he's at least angry enough or suffering from some kind of mental illness where, you know, he thinks that this is the right thing to do for him to go out and plan and execute on his plan and, and shoot two innocent people randomly, giving them no chance to defend themselves or to run or to hide or anything. The other part is how, you know, you have to take into consideration how organized he was. And this this was not something that he just suddenly snapped one day and was so angry he decided he was going to go out and do this. He, he as we all heard, he was arrested with loaded firearms, pistols, rifles, uh, ready to go. And uh, yeah. I, I agree with the statements of the police that they not arrested him, that we would have uh, another victim or victims on our hands. Help me as a, a non-expert, obviously, in law enforcement. Do they backtrack now, even before Wednesday, Dave, and look and say, could anything else be linked? Could anything else be unsolved? We, this is obviously some of what happened with Bruce MacArthur. It, it's some of what happened when Paul Bernardo was arrested, quite quite honestly. So is there is there a, a trace back your steps and, and rewind the clock to see if anything else he could have been involved in? Absolutely. You start right at the crime scene and you start rewinding and tracing back as far as you have to go. And if, if there's enough history, you can go back through, you know, a, a person's entire adult life to see, you know, what might have led them to come to where we are today, where suddenly somebody with uh, no criminal record, somebody that is legally in possession, we don't hear this very often, legally in possession of firearms, suddenly decides they're going to go out and, and randomly murder people downtown Toronto. It's it's rare, almost unheard of. It's it's frightening. Um, but, you know, there was some excellent police work done. It's, uh, it just sh- kind of shows you where we are with technology. I think technology was a big part of solving this crime. And wherever you are in big cities these days, you, you might as well guarantee that you're on video and, and act accordingly because... You start working, as you as you said, you start working backwards, and even with the video, that's what led to his location and, and a very quick arrest. This is probably a suspect uh, and an alleged uh, murderer that can't be caught the same way and as quickly 25 years ago. Absolutely, yeah. No, 25 years ago, this would have been a much more difficult case. But uh, as I said, technology is assisting law enforcement mm-hmm. uh, more and more every day. In a city like Toronto, there are cameras everywhere, right? I've done investigations, uh, even in my policing days, where we could we could track people virtually all over the city of Toronto just based on video. So this was this was a huge part of, of this arrest. One more for you. I know I've talked to you uh, a few times uh, on the air here um, at six forty about about gun control. He was a legal gun owner, but will this raise questions? Because it's such a high profile case, does this raise more questions about? Who should own what and background checks and like I, there's no way to control how many guns it feels like a person owns. Um, there's a lot. There's just a lot of gray area with with our laws, which we which are much, much stricter than the United States. But he had all his guns legally. Yes, he did. And personally, I think our gun laws are, are strong enough. Um, as I said, this is a rare occasion where a legal gun owner, somebody who has his guns registered and he's properly licensed and so on commit such a, a heinous act all the violence we hear about every single day with firearms mostly pistols all illegal guns that's where the focus needs to be to stem the flow of illegal guns and to let's just say up the punishment for people that participate in that kind of crime that's that's where i believe this country needs to go dave thanks for your expertise this morning and have a great uh, great easter weekend i appreciate the time always a pleasure you as well dave perry uh joining us on 640 toronto 
Thanks very much for listening to Toronto Today. Have yourself a great long weekend. We have a best of show tomorrow for Good Friday, but you can always find us here for podcasts and check out old episodes that you missed. Back with a live show Monday, 530 to 9 on the Radio Player Canada app or here at 640toronto.com.